So I wanted to open up this morning with a little audience participation. First question for everybody. How many of you had one day this week or more where you just didn't want to get out of bed? Show of hands. Yeah, I'm, I'm in that too. How many of it was today? We've all been in that moment, right? We're working through what it's like to get out of bed. The alarm goes off and you just go, oh, what if I just didn't exist in society today? Maybe, maybe, okay, okay. If I hit the alarm, 15 minutes, maybe that'll make a difference, but it's not going to make a difference. Okay, what if I, what if I, uh, okay, what do I have on my, on my responsibilities list for today? Okay, I got to take the kids to school. I got to do this. And something will hit in that list of responsibilities while we're rationalizing whether or not we can stay in bed. It'll hit us and something will win over where our emotions are and rational win, and we'll go, all right, and we'll flop out of bed, and maybe your feet land first. And that's just the start of your day when you have one of those mornings. Now, how many of you, second question, throw out an answer, how many decisions do you think we make every day? Twelve? That was, man, I wish I was in that level of responsibility. Ten thousand? 36, 2,000? Okay, so if you made one decision every minute and you get about seven hours of sleep, you'd be a little over 1,000 decisions every day. Now, the internet, if you just Google it, you're going to get a number of 35,000. I find that a little hard to believe in the math, but we make a lot of decisions. Some are super simple. I'm hungry, I'll go find food. And then we get into the where do you want to eat and it takes an hour and a half to figure out how we go, where we actually do that stuff. But all in all, some of the decisions are really quick to make, some are a little bit more important. Some, like the fact that we're picking up a new puppy on Saturday, you keep saying no and your family wins you over and then you see the face of the puppy and you're like, all right, I'm in, fine, fine. But even that, we still haven't named the dog. The dog's name is Future Dog, and I don't know how long Future Dog is gonna stick around for a name. My names keep getting rejected, what I keep recommending. But in all the decisions we make, and a lot of the times we don't think about this as a daily decision, there is no decision more important than whether or not we treasure Jesus. Now, we've all had, hopefully, or we're working in the process, or we're getting there, this moment where we decide to treasure Jesus. But then life throws all kinds of things at us, and it's almost a daily affirmation, even just getting out of bed. If you didn't want to get out of bed this week, what was probably one of the first thoughts in your head when you flopped onto the floor trying to get out? Oh, Jesus, please help me today. And that's actually what John is going to actually focus on for today's text. He's been talking about everybody wrestling and people who don't get it over and over and over. And this is a really unique passage. It's actually five short little vignette stories, and within it, 12 big questions because they're about Jesus. And one in the middle, it's like a sandwich. Two vignettes of questions, one in the middle where Jesus is going to give us a definitive idea. And then two more little vignettes where it's questions. And I think this is why John's doing it. Even all the commentaries that I read, they stated this is a really unique passage. And it's almost no like new fresh content for, what, for what's being brought up in a lot of these questions. But the fact that John is spending time very consciously working through watching the crowd, watching the Pharisees process who Jesus might be, I think John's trying to take us here for a big idea today. It's that the decision to treasure Jesus is rarely simple, but it comes with extraordinary support. 
Now, we have a lot of text that we're going to go through today. So I actually want to uh, start with the first idea, and then we're going to use that as we go through the text, and there's even going to be a little pause and jump and come back because we've got uh, almost 30 verses to work through today. Um, but here's the idea. Just that, that affirmation over and over and over of do we believe Jesus is who we either bought into when we decided we wanted to follow him or that we're still working through. Because every time something in life hits us, we kind of have to find the strength from somewhere to push through it. And so John's going to help us understand that it's actually a good thing to process what this is. So gracious Heavenly Father, as we work through this text, we pray, especially with as much text as we're working through, that you help us to hear and help us to see what you intended John not only to capture in the moment when he was writing this, but that you help us to see it for where you want to take us with this. Illuminate what this text is for us this morning. Help us to see you and draw to you and appreciate your son with even more fervor. In your name we pray. So our first idea for this morning is this. Treasuring Jesus challenges our minds, and it should. This is the most important and complex idea, trying to really unpack. Sometimes it gets so oversimplified that sometimes we don't take a step back to see how complex it is, and then sometimes it gets so complex we don't take a step back to see how simple it is. All of that involves these big, beautiful brains that God has given us to try and work through and process who he is, who Jesus is, what the role of Jesus is. And the very first thing in this text that it's actually going to come up is the crowd asks a very important question that we today can even ask ourselves. Is Jesus actually the Messiah? So we're going to jump in here at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So right now they're all at a big festival. So you've got everybody who lives in Jerusalem as well as people coming in from out of town. And it's no secret that the people in charge in the big city, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, don't like Jesus. There are zero surprises here about what the temperature is. Jesus is a big personality, and he's saying stuff that's getting people to critically think. And everyone knows that there's a battle happening. They continue, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. So it begs another question, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? There's people there watching this unfold, and they're taking all the evidence in front of them, and they're processing, and John's capturing that they're processing this out loud. How come, if, if all the enmity toward Jesus is happening, how come they haven't made their move? Could it be they actually know something? And they're actually pondering, is this the Messiah? And John continues this narrative, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So they're working through their theology, what they've heard, what they understand. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, guys, you know me and you know where I come from. I've been telling you over and over. Yeah, you know I'm the guy from Galilee, but I've been telling you over and over, I come from the Father. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. So John continues this narrative. If you don't see God for who he is, you can't see me for who I am. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So John captures the emotional reaction in here. 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him yet because his, his hour had not yet come. They don't like that Jesus keeps saying he's from God. And John gives us this one little snippet there at the very end of 30. Because his hour has not yet come, he just wants to remind us, Jesus is in control of this entire situation. If he wanted to be arrested, he could get arrested. He's keeping them at bay. And then he talks about this other group. John talks about this other group here. Yet many of the people believed in him. So you've got Pharisees and Sadducees, and you've got people who don't like Jesus pointing himself and connecting himself to God. And then you've got these other people. So far, John has caveated almost everybody who's followed. They sort of get it. They don't really understand. They're working through stuff. His brothers last week didn't understand. They were more about it for themselves. And then he says this with zero caveats, yet many of the people believed in him. There's actually a group who gets this. And even they're asking questions. When Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Of all the evidence we have, the miracles, the healing of this guy in Bethesda pools that, that is the fight, his teaching, his pronouncements, who else is going to come and be so profound? No one else has been like him, and he's giving us this, uh, just this idea that we can't imagine anyone else being more like the Christ for what we understand it to be. And so John is trying to capture and give us permission to work through who Jesus might actually be, just like these were doing, these guys were doing 2,000 years ago. So he goes to the next vignette, and they all have slight connections to him. This next vignette, he's going to ask these two questions. He's going to show us the groups are asking these two questions. Why did Jesus come here, and what happens when he leaves. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, what, will he do more signs than this? And then you get an immediate reaction from that previous vignette. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. He hears people being, they hear people being pro-Jesus, and they move. They send the, the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to actually go arrest him. And Jesus, of course, being aware of everything that's happening, ties into knowing exactly what's going to happen when he eventually gets arrested, which will be he'll end up on the cross. And he says, I will be with you a little longer. Then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, we get the benefit of the whole picture. And we get the benefit of people talking about the whole picture and telling us in different ways. They're in the moment, so a little bit of grace for these guys for not understanding what on earth Jesus is talking about right now. He's going somewhere? How's this work? So trying to process, okay, one, we're still trying to wrap our heads around what he's here for. If he's the Messiah, at what point is he going to attack and make everything good and be this giant general we've expected? But now he's going to go somewhere. So they start working through questions again. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? That's where all the Jews were sent out from hostile forces, so they're all spread out all over the area, spread out among Greek populations, being the dominant one, and teach the Greeks. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. They're lost right now for answers, but the good news is they're wrestling. They're trying to figure this out. They're trying to process who Jesus is, whether they were pro-Jesus or anti-Jesus, they're using the brains God gave them to work through who Jesus is. Here's where 
gets a little interesting because in particular for this one thing, John's going to drop that now we're moving to the meat of this sandwich. So the first two vignettes, lots of questions. And then we move to this meat where Jesus actually kind of answers this question right here. It's one really big answer to these 12. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So people reading this in first century when it was written, they would understand it. I'm going to give you context for what's happening here. This is all happening around the Feast of Tabernacles, which is this tradition they have of celebrating the seven years, every seven years, what the harvest has been. And you can't harvest crops and you can't feed people without water. A lot of the focus is on water for these guys. They celebrate that God has provided the water for the crops and its ability to grow and help them provide and and they understand God's role in this. And so they celebrate every seven years. People come in from out of town. Everybody gets together in Jerusalem. And in particular, on this great day, they all assemble at the temple. And in the temple, there's a few things that are happening. The first is that they actually have a water ceremony. This water ceremony celebrates what God provided in Exodus when they were in the desert. So Exodus 17, if you want to read it later where Moses, with a staff, hits a rock and water is provided. The people are thirsty in the desert and God provided water for them. And so they have a ceremony that celebrates this. And then they go to their parchments, probably looking something pretty close to this Xerox copy that I have, and they read from Isaiah 12, verse 1 to 3. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And then they look forward to the future. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. With joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. So they link in the prophecy of Isaiah, they link this idea of water and the provision of what water provides to their salvation. Jesus has been talking about living water and they're linking, they're linking this space together in their, their past traditions and what they do to bring this all forward. And then another thing that they do consistently is they read a few of the Psalms, Psalm 118 in particular. They do this at Passover as well. Now Psalm 118 has a couple of stuff that uh, a couple of verses that feel familiar to a lot of us. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And after a lot of these verses, they all shout out, great are you God. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The cornerstone Sound familiar in imagery, right? We've heard this before. So they've all just celebrated God's provision through water. They've linked it to prophecy of being able to draw on the wells of salvation. And then they read from this psalm that mentions the cornerstone being rejected. But they celebrate God's provision. They've linked it all the way from Exodus to here. And then they sit down to gather their thoughts and they meditate on it. And when the crowd goes silent... Jesus does this. Anyone 
If you didn't hear Johnny, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Could you imagine being in that temple? All this connection to water. And this guy who they all know is already starting to push boundaries of what they believe him to be and wondering if he's actually the Messiah, stands up and says, come to me. I'm the fulfillment. Everything you just celebrated from the past to now, it's me. I'm the guy. Could you imagine what impact that would have on you if you saw that happen? John captures this response. We're going to unpack 38 and 30. And we're going to pause it, come back to that. And we're actually going to switch to here, which the people start immediately asking the most obvious question. Is Jesus actually fulfilling prophecy? Again, they go, they're using their brains, they're working through this. John captures starting in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Now, if you're assuming there's a difference between these two, there are. The prophet, in line with Moses, is something that's been brought up and they're kind of thinking they're going to get another prophet coming along. Prophets are wonderful. There have been amazing prophets who have helped guided their people back to God. Who have given prophecy and it's been fulfilled. But they're not the Christ. So John sees this even working out. They know Jesus is good. Just how we get, he's a good teacher. Or even nowadays, you'll hear people go, Jesus was a good person. He's got decent teaching. They're still wrestling with that. And you get people who are actually processing, maybe this is the Christ. And we get back into another section of questions. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They know where this guy came from. He's from Galilee, right? And according to scripture, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. Now, as people who have the whole picture, this is kind of funny, right? In fairness to them, they can't just Google where is Jesus from. Here's where they actually get a lot of credit and that John's trying to point them to. This question, they actually know their scripture. They actually have an idea going on. They're not just totally lost in this. They actually understand that he's supposed to come from the line of David. They know their prophecy. They're excited about what's going to happen. And so they're actually getting so close to figuring this out. It's palpable. And John takes us to the fifth and final little vignette for this morning where posing that question, we get into this. And this is not uncommon to us today. Who knows best about Messiah and the law. So often we trust other people to guide us in understanding who Jesus is. Just like they were then. We put our hope in the hands of other people, whether it's interpreting scripture or it's taking us through something or how they break down where scripture is trying to point us. This is a big reason why we're first-handers here. Read it for yourself. We're here to help But we're not perfect either. We're doing the best we can with the best of intentions. And we pray all the time that God help illuminate the scripture to us, that we get it correctly as your pastoral staff and as your life group leaders. But everybody is wrestling through this idea. 
And so John in the text picks up at verse 43 and says, so there was a division among the people over him. Off of what Jesus did, there is now overt fighting and discouragement about what's going on. Who is this guy? Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring this man? And the officers answered, no one has ever spoken like this man. Even these guys who are told, I give you direction, you go do it. They're going, this guy's something different. He's unique. And the Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? We're the guys in charge. Do you see a single person who's in charge advocating for who Jesus is? Come on. And they even add to the back end of it. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They look down on the people. They have a history of separating themselves from the people. We're the trained ones. We're the smart ones. We know what's going on. They're just, they're the masses. Like, we'll just tell them what to do. What did John just show us in the previous vignette? They actually kind of have a pretty good idea what's going on. He's doing this for one big reason. He's trying to point out the Pharisees are done asking questions. No longer is there a discussion in their eyes. This is over. You can't say a thing that will change their minds. They have it out for Jesus, and they are not even processing anymore who Jesus is, which makes it for us all the more important that we keep thinking and wrestling with who Jesus is. In verse 49, but this crowd does not know that the law is accursed. And then they introduce a familiar name from chapter 3, Nicodemus. You guys remember Nicodemus? He's the Pharisee who actually came at night and said, you're something different, Jesus. And we're still working through what this is. And Jesus explains to him what it means to be born again. And he just goes, I don't get it. But he's wrestling and working through this. And so Nicodemus, one of their own, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? You guys who are totally in charge, who are telling everybody else, you know what's going on and you're most connected to God, you're skipping steps. You're not even adhering to the law you promised to uphold. Come on, guys. In addition, between showing some support for Jesus on Nicodemus' behalf, he's calling out his own for pointing out that they are not actually wrestling through What could be possible? To call out the Pharisees even more about the fact that they've stopped asking questions and trying to process who Jesus is, they respond back, are you from Galilee too? This is meant as a major insult. Pick whatever city you find as podunk. Insert that city. That'll give you an idea about what he's trying to say. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. What they're trying to say to him there is, There's no history of anybody of note ever coming from Galilee. So how is this guy from Galilee going to be anything of any worth? They're done listening. They're done processing. God wants us to use our brains. Our circumstances are a little bit different. Our questions are a little bit different. We have the benefit of Scripture being able to see the whole picture But just like these guys were 2,000 years ago, he wants us, in order to treasure him, to keep challenging our minds. Every time we hit the wall, every time we reach that fence, just keep pushing. But it's not just our minds. Now, that's what John spent his time doing, these overt questions of what guys are working through. 
But the second piece is actually the subtext, and that's Jesus, treasuring Jesus challenges our hearts. So every single one of these questions, he doesn't call it out in words, but there is emotional stuff working inside of everybody else. Every question we ask, it's to wrestle with something that we're feeling. Every intellectual idea that we have, we're trying to, we're trying to figure out how does that impact what's going on in our hearts. And so in particular, I think it starts here with what he's trying to point out. They're doing it. I think all of these all matter to us and how we treasure Jesus as well. Treasuring Jesus affects our hope. On one side, what if we're wrong? What if it's actually Muhammad or Buddha or somebody else? We put all this time and effort and focus into something that could fail. Do I really want to be all in on something that might be incorrect? And on the good side, I've been waiting for this forever. This is finally, this is the fulfillment of that God-shaped hole inside of me that's been yearning. Working through our emotions of what will happen if we actually come to a conclusion on one side or the other. And when we come to this conclusion, it impacts our purpose, our view of how we actually live out our lives. How do we interact with people because of this? How do we dedicate our time, our resources, our money? All come from this emotional place. What actually is my motivation? Did I get up this morning with the, today is a new day, God, show me what you have kind of attitude? Or are we living in despair? There's no hope. The headlines, the culture around us has made us sink to a place that we can't come out of. And when your purpose is affected, how you actually carry yourself, it can impact your social status. Who wants to hang with you? Right now, in case you haven't noticed, it's not the best calling card to lob out right away. You're a Christian when you don't know the room. Finding out I'm getting called names by my kids' peers simply for my existence. It's the thing she's wrestling in. How do I actually hold the line of wrestling with who my, what my faith is around these peers who just hear Christian and just assume whether they've had any exposure or a clear definition, just assume I must be a jerk. So it can impact our social status. Or we can end up on the other side. You get so into the Christian bubble, you don't actually know how to work with the other world, but man, are you good inside the Christian bubble? Invited all the cool parties, you know, you know, I actually uh, got a chance to talk directly with the pastor this week. I'm somebody special. Our social status has a direct impact on two other things. The first is our comfort. When we treasure Jesus, are we willing to put ourselves out there where it affects our comfort? Some of it is reactive. The world acting upon us, this broken world challenging us, that actually impacts our ability and our comfort. Or is it on the other end, like the early church? Are we willing to put ourselves in a position that we're wrestling with what it feels like emotionally to proactively challenge our comfort and put ourselves out there emotionally, financially, to benefit the gospel movement? All these things, John the author 
and God the creator want us to wrestle with? And last, of course, it's our relationships. We all probably have some story, if we've decided to treasure Jesus, where we have a friend who used to be a close friend, and maybe they're not, and maybe it's over this issue. Hopefully we're heartbroken over that. Or maybe it's the future relationships. Every morning when we wake up and try and treasure Jesus, these are things that we should be emotionally assessing in our lives. My big moment when I actually decided this was it, I was going to accept Jesus, I was on a plane coming back from a business trip from Houston to here. It was an evening flight. And aside from trying to nap and maybe playing, like, I think it was Candy Crush at the time to just kill my brain off from days of work, I also tried to make myself a promise that I was going to read my Bible on every leg of every flight as much as I could. I get motion sickness, so it's kind of limited. That's why I will not be on the men's fishing trip. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading Acts and I'm watching in my mind's eye while I'm reading this, the explosion of the church and it's all based in this fearlessness. And I'm thinking, why don't I feel like I have that? And I realized this question. I'm either all in or I'm all out. Which one am I? It's always kind of been this nice, at that point, it had always kind of been this nice thing. I probably would say I was like 70% in. But treasuring something, there's no part way. You don't treasure something you're half in on. So I closed my eyes, and I was working through this, and I worked through both sides of it. I worked through what happens if I don't treasure Jesus. The reality was I was going to come home off this plane and tell my family we're never going to church again. What a waste of time that would be if I didn't actually treasure Jesus. Or I'm in. I can treasure Jesus and take on whatever the world is going to throw at me. Relationships, comfort, social status, where I place my hope, whether or not I get out of bed in the morning and why I get out of bed in the morning. My actions haven't always looked perfect. You guys clearly know the punchline of that story. But I came home to my wife, got home from the airport, and told her that night what I went through. Both what would have happened if I would have decided not, and the fact that I was in. And again, life throws lots of things at us. Difficulties, relationally, physically. Sometimes they're our own fault. Sometimes they get put upon us and we don't even know. I want to pose this question to everybody today. What about treasuring Jesus is challenging your heart and mind right now? Is there something that you're still working through and processing? Something maybe emotionally you're holding on to of trusting who he is? Maybe you're in the early stages of trying to figure out who Jesus is, and that's totally okay. What's it look like trying to even get there? What are the hurdles that you're being stuck on? What are the things either intellectually, conceptually, emotionally that you're trying to process? So I'd love to take everybody, just take a couple seconds and actually think about that. Think about that and offer to God right now, whatever I'm hung up on, help me process this. Help me see you for who you are.
there's a reason we're able to keep working on these things. Despite everything that the world throws at us that hits our hearts, hits our minds. What John's trying to point out and what Jesus is doing is trying to take us here. That treasuring Jesus comes with extraordinary support for every question, every challenge, every burden, every hurdle in life. We get support that sometimes I think we don't take it, we're not able to take the step back and appreciate. And the first is that we get scripture. We get the whole story. We get the whole picture that we can go to, that we can actually pick up the word and read exactly what we're talking about today and wrestle with it. And in addition to that, we actually have the church as broken and messed up as it can feel sometimes. God has given us each other. This body that has survived for 2,000 years when other ideologies have failed or changed completely in order to survive. God has given us this big, beautiful church that we can rally around each other in every need and challenge and thought an exciting moment, the highs and the lows, we can all be together in our pursuit. And here's the biggest thing. I want to take some time focusing on this. He gives us the Holy Spirit. When I said we were going to go back to 37 through 39, the, big, the really big answer in the middle, this is what he focuses on. Now, the Holy Spirit can be probably a multi-week thing, whether it's a preaching service or a private classroom or somewhere like that. I am going to do about eight to 10 minutes on the Holy Spirit. It is not comprehensive, it is not complete, but it is trying to help us process what Jesus said and how the Holy Spirit actually impacts our lives. So bear with me, happy to answer any questions if you have any, but bear with me, this is not complete and total and comprehensive. So on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John helps us understand and says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who, have, who believed in him were yet to receive, for yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The simple part of that is John was just trying to point out, he's talking about this gift of the Spirit, but until Jesus actually dies and is resurrected and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, you can't get the Spirit yet because Jesus has not been perfected through his death. That's that part. What he is trying to say, what I want to work on is this. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There is going to be something when we thirst, when we desire to pull near who Jesus is. Not only is our thirst going to be quenched, we're going to have so much fulfillment. It's actually going to flow out of us that others can actually receive this. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's what's actually going to come into us and leave us toward other people and guide us. And so what exactly is the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit for us? Now, you can spend, and I just did in seminary, lots of weeks just talking about the Spirit at the very, very beginning of creation and time and how he was there and how he proceeds from the Father. That's not where I'm going to talk about today. I want to talk about how it relates to us. And it's this simple idea, God's Spirit dwelling in us. If you've grown up in the church, you hear, God, you get the Holy Spirit. It's in you, right? God's Spirit is dwelling in us. Remember the Old Testament? They had to build a temple 
with special layers for how you could get to God because he could not be around sin and people literally died if they could not go anywhere near him because of the sin in their life. Yet we as broken, messed up people have God actually dwelling inside of us. I feel small right now. What a gift. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these before. It's a, once again, incredible simplification of how this works. We will never understand the Trinity until we are up there. I think that is the first biggest, brightest aha moment that we're going to have when we get up there, that we actually see the Spirit, the Father, and the Son interacting three in one and going, oh, now I get it. As long as you're on the left and you're on the right, okay, I understand. It's with mirrors. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you can see on the outside of, the, of this triangle, they try and point out they are separate purposes. They all have a unique gift and thing that they bring to the table. On the inside, though, is the core essence. They are all God, all in their entirety. So when we get the Spirit, we get everything about God's essence in our lives. It becomes our lifeblood when we believe. So why does this even happen? Why give us the Holy Spirit? Here's the shortest answer of today. Life isn't easy. We can't do this on our own. God understood it. So he has this marvelous plan that includes getting the Spirit to dwell inside of us. So how do we actually receive the Holy Spirit? It's what John talked about in verse 39. We get it through Jesus because he is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. Because he lived a perfect, sinless life and died for us and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, God allows him to put forth the Holy Spirit into our lives. If Jesus had messed up at all, this wouldn't be there we would not have been able to receive it. The Trinity would have been completely happy up in heaven by itself. But because Jesus is who he says he is, we get to receive this. What a gift. So what does it actually mean for us? So I'm going to go through four real quick things. So what do we actually get with the Holy Spirit? The first one is we get God's mark. This is what scripture tells us. We get God's mark on our lives and promise to save us. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we receive the Holy Spirit, God puts a mark on us that cannot go away. And no matter what this world throws at us, we receive it. This is what Paul was making sure the Ephesians knew when he wrote to them. Guys, if you have the Spirit, you're marked and protected. What a wonderful thing to know. The second one, we get a guide for our minds. All the challenges of treasuring Jesus in our minds, we get something that helps guide us. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, 12 to 13, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us 
by God. John makes a point of pointing out, no one knows the Father except for the Son who is with him. God is a complex thing, but because of the Spirit, we get to understand who he is. And not only do we get to understand in verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Not only does God help us understand and decode this knowledge of him, it's actually the same thing through the Spirit that actually allows us to share it with other people. He gives us a guide for our hearts in Galatians. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These things that are rooted in self-satisfaction and the emotional draw. The quick fix. Paul continues, as I warned you and as I've warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who cannot separate their guilty pleasures, the draw and desire for themselves to be fulfilled in everything. We are blocked from being able to be near God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The things that overcome these challenges of our broken world that are rooted inside of us, the Holy Spirit helps to define and push out. Now, maybe... We're still a little angry, but where would we have been without the Holy Spirit? He's continuing to build and refine us, and without him, we're left looking on the outside. He unlocks the kingdom for us through this connection. And lastly, support in our challenges. Romans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to, uh, what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, God himself, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because it's his mind. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When we are broken, when we are hurt, when we are lost, when we are struggling, when these challenges can't be reconciled, these challenges of the heart and mind can't be reconciled, the Spirit steps in and helps us from the deepest parts of our soul that we can't even communicate, steps in and connects us. If I were Todd Chapman, I would have a red mark on my forehead from pounding it of the sheer elation that we get from seeing this. This is phenomenal. What a gift we have that in all these challenges, no matter what we're struggling with today, whether we've already begun to treasure Jesus or whether we're still working through the process, we have this gift, we have this opportunity to be connected to him. What an incredible gift we have in the spirit. So for this week, two things. I'd love for you to find somebody, your spouse, your kids, your best friend, your coworker. Tell them how you came to treasure Christ. And if you haven't yet, which is okay, tell them what you're working through in that process. Recount your story. Talk it out loud. Talk about the hurdles and the challenges. What did you have to overcome? What might you have been stuck on? 
that you finally had to reconcile? What was your moment like mine on the plane where I finally had to realize I'm in? Which if you got more time to talk, I had things I was hung up on that I let go in that moment. And I trusted that God and what I saw in scripture was actually what it was supposed to be, not what I had created. Tell somebody that story, relive it. Relight that fire and that memory and that reminder for who Jesus is in your life. And last, over four days this week, take one of those things I just shared about the Holy Spirit and just spend the day pondering all day long. Man, what a gift. Today, I get to think about how I am marked and loved by the Spirit. I get to think about how it's helping my mind, helping my heart, helping me in my challenges. Now, we have something for you on the way out, on the table out there. We put those four things with the verses on a little card. You can grab it, you can put it on your dashboard, on your fridge, on your computer monitor, whatever it is. They're just sitting right out here in the lobby. I'll make sure that Stephen Huggins is, I'm looking right at you, Stephen Huggins will be down there. Just walk over to the lovely Stephen Huggins with his pants rolled up and he'll be doing this <laughs> to guide you where they are. But just ponder this incredible gift that we have in the spirit. And that because Jesus is who he says he is, we get to savor this in all of our challenges, in all of our victories. We have God himself dwelling in us. So gracious Heavenly Father, help us remember exactly that, that you are who you say you are. And in this plan, from the mystery of the Trinity to the death of your Son, to all the complexities of our lives that are thrown at us, you've given us this incredible gift of your Son, and through him we receive your Spirit. Thank you for being a God bigger and so loving that you're willing to help us get there. We are so incredibly blessed. We are so spoiled. Help us to appreciate how spoiled we are. In your name we pray. Amen.